If you're a founder building a company, you're going to eventually have to start hiring executives to help you scale. The people you bring into your leadership team can make or break your startup. I'm Nigel Robinson with Build Talent, and in each episode, we'll be speaking with a founder or expert as we discuss the art and science of hiring leaders, why it matters, and how you can keep up. Welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Hey folks, welcome to the Gradients Podcast. Today I'm here with Jeff Winter, the VP of Talent at Chime. Before this, he had a stint at Rigetti Computing. Before that, he was Director of Technical Recruiting at Thumbtack. And prior to that was the co-founder of Gravity, a search firm that both the co-founders of Build had towards the duty at. And so he is a treasure chest of experiences and I told you so moments out there in his career. So he's going to share some of the game with us today. Thanks for being on, Jeff. Yeah, Nigel. Thanks for having me. Pleasure being here. No doubt. So this is not a question that we've typically started with, but you've been in the game for such a long time. What is the most impactful hire that you've ever made, would you say? Oh, geez. The most impactful hire that I've ever made probably would be most likely in my agency days when we were building out the team, it was trying to identify recruiters, talented people that could potentially grow not just the business, but kind of grow other people around them. So when I take a look at the people that I have hired, I think there's there's a handful of recruiters that worked at the agency that I thought were like highly impactful. I'm not going to name names because I don't want to do that, but you know, all know who you are. <laughs> but as far as maybe people that I put into roles I don't know. I've done a lot of big searches and I've done some smaller searches. The ones that I'm most proud about are, are people that are actually at organizations. Like I did some work with Ian Coombe over at WhatsApp, and, but like the first three of 10 engineers in his organization. So it's pre-acquisition, like they're oh, yeah. just getting the, the thing rolling. They're just getting going and put like number six, number nine and number 10 engineer in there. Wow. And those guys made it out big and they had a big impact and couple of them sent me some notes thanking me. And so that made me feel good. It kind of like makes you feel good about the work that you do and that people remember you. But I've had a lot of a lot of big searches that I've closed and I can't point to any one that I actually think was the who had the most impact. Yeah. And to your point, like that's the thing I love about the talent game is we specialize in win-win situations. Okay. So tell me about how you got into Chime. You're the first talent leader that they have in the organization. Is that right? That's correct. So where were they at in their life cycle? Like what was going on in the company that they think to bring in their kind of first talent leader? And what was it about, I guess also, what was the process like they're recruiting without a talent leader? And then, yeah, what was going on that made you feel like this was the right the jump for you? Well, to be honest with you, I wasn't sure it was the right move for me. I'll go back a little bit if we got a little bit of time. But sure. when I was taking a look outside of Rigetti, I did field a call from a recruiter that pitched Chime. And I had asked the question, oh, is this one debit? And they were like, yeah, it's one debit. And I was like, oh, well, I know Ryan King, who's our CTO. And I was like, well, I'll talk to these guys. Like, I didn't think fintech was sexy. It was like, do I really want to do that? And I'm usually a mission-driven individual. And so when I ended up talking to Chime, I was like, all right, there's something here. I get the impact. But they were the first call that I, have, that I took, the first interview that I took. Moved forward approximately 20 or 30 days, I accepted the offer. And when I started, the company was about 100 people. and my boss was the CFO, Matt Newcomb, who's phenomenal. And I was like, okay, well, what all do you have? What's going on? And, and I took a look at their systems. I took a look at like their infrastructure and 
man, it was it was 100% Greenfield. And it was a real surprise to me. They were using G-Hire. And they're at 100 people already at this point. 100 people, 100 people. And they hadn't really experienced a tremendous amount of growth until probably maybe three quarters before I had gotten there. They had actually started to ramp up. There was a raise coming that I actually did not know about until I was 30 or 45 days in. And I was like, wait, you guys are going to raise? Like, are you kidding me? Like, we're not even close to being ready. I'm getting GI mm-hmm. out. They had a bunch of agencies signed up, paper flying everywhere. And remember, I'm the first recruiter in the place. Yeah. So they don't even have a recruiter at all until 100 people. Yeah. They did not have a recruiter. They had a contract recruiting coordinator who would schedule interviews um, based on who was available to some extent and then who was a, you know qualified. But it was one of those things where you just go in, you're like, okay, full on survival mode. How do you prioritize things? How do you structure things effectively? And I'm somewhat of an operator to a degree. It's not something that I used to do when I was doing agency. It's just like bang, bang, get deals, get a contract, public relationship, and then just bill. But going in-house, you're like, okay, how do I organize it? What are the key things that I need to focus on? And when I actually try to, when I built Chime's recruiting and talent acquisition team, it was like, okay, candidate experience, employment brand, recruiting, talent ops. And then like at the bottom, because the organization wasn't ready, it was like, okay, we got to build in early talent. Can you talk us through why that's the priority list? Like why in that order? What's the kind of thinking behind that? Well, if you were to order it, it's probably a build a recruiting team and a recruiting coordination team. So talent ops starts to seed itself. But like with the talent ops team and the recruiting coordination team, as you're scheduling interviews, you can actually start building the candidate's experience in parallel. Employment brand takes a bit more time to figure out like what you are, what the company is about, how you're going to talk about the mission, how you're going to amplify that. And then of course, what resources you use to channel that out into the world. But those, I guess the four things, talent ops, recruiting, employment brand, and um, the candidate experience candidate experience all have to come together in order to create the function itself. Yeah. Those are the, the pistons of the engine as it were. Absolutely. And then once you start getting people running through the process and interviewing, then you're tracking the data, you're taking a look at conversions, benchmarks, and all these things. But coming into the company, it was like, all right, what's headcount look like? Finger in the air, it was given headcount numbers. And then it was like, okay, how are you going to map a team? How many people are you going to hire in analytics? How many in engineering? How many data science, machine learning, marketing, et cetera? And then you have to figure out, okay, what are the capacity What's the capacity that people can operate on? Like, do you want your recruiter to do six closes in a month for marketing? Do you want them to do three in engineering? And you got to work the math back. Because that dictates the skill set of how you think about hiring your team in some sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you have to decide if you want to do a generalist or if you want to do specialists. Like technical recruiters, they can pretty much do anything. Product and design recruiters want to typically stay in that realm they can move over to marketing. Mm -hmm. There's a little bit of crossover there, but like things that you think about when you start building a team. So what's important to you about those first talent hires? Like, I feel like there are are general startup attributes that kind of fit no matter where you're at in the startup stack. But the difference, I always think the difference between the best recruiters and the worst recruiters is a massive gap. (laughs) <laughs> and like, and you know, some recruiters fit better at different places. Some people require uh-huh. a little more scaffolding than, than others. Like, how do you think about that when you're building out your team, especially when you have so many competing priorities across the different departments? 
it's funny when you're putting together a team and you're you're literally architecting a recruiting team, right? Right, right. Like you're thinking about the people that they're going to have to interact with. You're going to think about like, okay, I'm again data driven, so I have a vision of like tools that we use and the and I want the built and I want the recruiters and the sourcers to be able to dive in and be curious about that and be able to present that to leaders so they can see conversion rates and time to fill, etc. So, but I also like to hustle, right? Like you got to have somebody that hustles. Now, back in the day, I was like, I'll hire agency people, but I'll tell you what, agency people are really freaking hard to manage. <laughs> Why really is that? Tell us about it. Well, you want me to go on that tangent? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking because yeah, maybe it's worth stepping back here because we've gotten a little bit of your thinking and how you hit the ground running at time, but you were at a totally different place in your career at the time you start Gravity. Like at this point, maybe you'd been recruiting. I see you were at Aerotech as just an account manager, but not necessarily at like the level of operator where it's like, you know what, I'm going to go found my own thing. So yeah, maybe that's worth taking a, a step back. I want to go that back that way. Yeah. Or, so, like, where are you at in your life? What's happening in your life and in your mind when you're like, all right, I'm going to start this thing. And then we can maybe get some of the pain that, that came along with that. You mean when doing the gravity thing starting back then? So I was at Aerotech for all of like three or four months. Okay. They did not pay well and they ground people. Like they just, you had to be there at a certain time. You had to wear a tie, they'll button up. And it's really just, I didn't, I was like, I can do this. And I was billing quite a bit, but I didn't like the way that they treated people. I think the guy that actually owns it is the owner of the Ravens. And I got a story about that guy, but I'll save that for a different time. <laughs> yeah. But I ended up contacting a buddy of mine and I was like, I contacted his, I actually tracked him down, called his mom's house, left a message. And, um, and, uh, he was like, yeah, he called me back. He's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I'm recruiting. He's like, well, I'm thinking about starting a recruiting firm. And we talked about like what kind of money you can make. Right. So five-year plan. Okay. I can do this. And I ended up moving up to Sun Valley, Idaho, where we started this thing. And it was me and four people originally. And then one of the guys left. And then the three of us basically built it, got it to six and moved everybody out to San Francisco. Now, when you're starting a recruiting business, it's really, really hard. Like you don't have, back in the day was 98, everybody had a recruiting business. Like it was done. And you don't got LinkedIn, huh? Yeah, we ain't, no, no LinkedIn. I think Jigsaw was a thing. Plaxo was a thing. But the job boards, Dice, Hot Jobs, Monster, Career Builder. If you had passwords, you could run it. Otherwise, you were, it was directories. So maybe TMI, but directories were a thing. And there were people that would go and get these directories, not in my organization, but they'd get these directories from the Cisco's, the Brocades, the Oracle's. And then you'd, you'd end up thumbing through, thumbing through these directories and you'd hit up their network engineers and you'd just call their office phone, right? And like leave... Just smiling and dialing. Dude, 120 calls a day. Right. Oh and you do goodness. the same thing on the business side. So you were doing, you'd have a runner and you'd like, a lot of agency people know this, right? You end up having a runner, a candidate that's actually not available or could be available. And the, but the resume is what you're reading off in every single call for BD and VPs of engineering would call you back then. Or you get them on a call and they just shuck and jive and they try to punch you over somebody and you just like stick with them on the phone. So it was really hard to establish yourself. But once you started to get a little bit of traction, and you were doing good work. That was the thing. Like, that's the thing about agency recruiters. There's so many of them out there and recruiters in general, as you mentioned. But like, are you ethical? Do you have the hustle? Are you closing the right deals? 
Or you just closing deals for the sake of closing deals and having a ton of fallouts. Because I've worked with people like that. They'll say anything to get it done. And then they'll just fall out everybody. It's terrible. I have not, in all my agency, I will say this, I did not have one single fallout in 17 years of agency work because I did not do bad deals. That is something that you need to be aware of. You have to, if you're putting people together, like you want to give guidance to not just the candidate, but to the manager. And the fallout here you're saying is like you you make the hire, but then that person quits or gets fired. Within 90 days, right? It's something you need to be aware of. I've seen recruiters bend over backwards, get a candidate a parking spot, get them a laptop, get them a sign-on bonus, get them flex work and stuff like that. Candidate takes it, but then they fall out because they're a management challenge, right? And the recruiter doesn't share that with hiring manager. But you're the some recruiters are willing to take the chance and get that back in the day, you know, twenty to now fifty to sixty thousand dollars to get that close, and it's not the right thing to do. And so you're on your founder journey. You kind of got the momentum where it, the business is is real and it's sustained. What is your thesis for hiring great recruiters at this point? Because maybe you're still maybe early enough that you haven't maybe seen the full spectrum or seen maybe all the ways that things could go wrong or the management challenges that that you were alluding to. I'm interested in, in maybe what you thought made a great recruiter now and maybe if that's changed to where it is today. But what is that distinction for you of what's a, a good recruiter versus a great recruiter? And how were you? Did you go about identifying that? So one of the things that I value in recruiters, and I guess the thing that I really look for in recruiters is a positive attitude and the ability to pick themselves up and keep driving forward because it is somewhat a thankless job and you lose a lot of, you lose some deals and people are always going to be like, well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do that? Blah, blah, blah. So you're constantly getting beat on. You're constantly making a case for yourself. You have to have a temperament that that you're willing to let that kind of like water off the duck's back, as they say, right? Like you just got to go with it. Like, okay, great. Thanks for your insight, but I'm going to continue doing it. There was a time during the recession after the dot-com bust where there was plenty of times where I had to be like, all right, got to get out of bed, put that foot on the floor. And there were a lot of people that worked with me that also did the same thing. There were a lot of people that worked with me that did not do that, right? Because it was freaking hard. It was really, really hard. So I do look for people that have a positive attitude, that are very, very thoughtful, that want to have fun because recruiting, again, is hard and are able to communicate effectively, tell a story, all those things. But you got to have those core attributes. Like you want to be able to, to and you, of course, you need somebody that listens to some extent, right? But yeah, I think every recruiter that's successful comes to work with a positive attitude, comes in with the right attitude. Yeah, you never meet like a lot of Eeyore recruiters with kind of that, <laughs> every, the gray, the sky is always a little too gray for them. Like you don't meet a lot of successful recruiters that are kind of based in that demeanor. Yeah, and the crazy thing is like, you can have a positive attitude and you can put on a front that you're super optimistic, but like after doing this for a while, you know, you absolutely know that there are so many things that could go sideways, Yeah, 100%. And those are the things you start guarding against. And so I don't know how when I was doing deals and I had a resume and I had the intake form and it looked like this candidate name, all the things. As I was going through the conversation with somebody and I felt good about them actually getting an offer, I'm scribbling down everything. Like who they're talking to, who their friends are working for, what their spouse does. 
how many kids they have. And I expect a general interest in the people, but you want recruiters to do that because you need to be able to establish a level of trust. And then again, I have told candidates, this is not a good deal for you. You shouldn't do it. But the thing is, the reason I do that is because I have all the information. I know a lot about the individuals. And you want your recruiter to be able to be inquisitive and all these things, which I think is hyper important. Yeah, I used to do that too. I'm like taking, oh, they're a soccer fan or, you know, they're they're really into uh, pottery or whatever it is. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, these are real people. They're not just like machines that are coming in operating and trying to find that that fit. We talk a lot about the art in recruiting. There's like the science of the funnel and then there's the art of recruiting. And uh, yeah, there is an art of recruiting. The way you put it is exact, right? There's the art of recruiting and there's the science of recruiting. Yeah. So how do you ramp up on the art? Like what was maybe your trajectory or how do you lead your team down that trajectory to kind of instill the art within them? Back in the day, it's it was really easy because you'd be sitting in a bullpit and you'd be able to bullpit, bullpen kind of a war room type deal where you were like, you would see everybody interacting and there was a room full of recruiters feeding off of each other and pulling information from each other. Okay, well, I'm dealing with this instance. How do I get the candidate to see X, Y, Z? And I think that being able just to guide people and feed them lines in some cases, or just be able to sit down and tell stories about like the examples that you've had in the past or provide those examples to people, I think is has been really, really effective. But I think the art thing is like, a lot of it is like, I mean, I don't know if this is like, I don't know if we want to put this in here, but like a lot of the stuff that I learned was just by moving around a bunch. Like my mom moved a lot. And so I went to a bunch of different schools and was constantly having to fit in somehow or make friends and, you know, constantly morphing to the environment. So I guess recruiting is an easy thing for me in that respect because I can pretty much engage with anybody that wants to engage with me. I can talk about pretty much anything. I can also, my the thing about recruiting is like a lot of it is cadence and inflection of tone, right? And I think that those are things that I try to get people to understand specifically around the close, pre-close and close, because that's where people get a little bit nervous and start to like wig out a little bit. Yeah, yeah, because high stakes high stakes, right? And you need to, assuming that the deal is a good deal for both sides, like you want to make sure that everybody has a clear picture and you need to be able to communicate effectively. But I think that my upbringing is different from a lot of people's upbringing, most likely. And so when I got into recruiting, it was relatively easy to engage. And you kind of need to remember in recruiting, it's just another person on the end of the phone. And in agency, it's just another hiring manager and it's just another candidate, you have to get into the mindset like, I've got a lot of autonomy here. I can be whoever I want to be. Like there's nothing, I mean, obviously you don't want to push boundaries and be inappropriate and all those things, but you get to be whoever you want to be. And if people don't like who you are on the business side or on the candidate side, make another call. So I think people just have to have confidence in their abilities is what it comes down to. So and just understand that the autonomy piece is, is something that's real and there's always going to be somebody else to call. Yeah, that's a fact. Because we work with a lot of founders, like you even, you're at Chime or they're at 100 people before they get a talent person. A lot of times it's a founder who's either a product person or a technical person. Like it's rare you meet a founder who started their career in recruiting. Right. What are the things that 
have that you've seen them like get wrong at the close or things are like easy things to remember or a way of grounding themselves when it comes to the close? Because I've seen, we've seen it a lot where, you know, the relationship's going well, you got the emotional momentum, it's actually a good deal. And then like you're saying, they kind of wig out a little bit at the close. They like not quite sure what to do or how much to push. You mean founders when this goes down? Yeah. They haven't exercised the muscle, right? Like they don't, this is new ground for them. They can talk about product, they can solve engineering problems, they can drive marketing efforts, et cetera. Like it's something that they're familiar with. But yeah, sometimes they freeze or they kind of get caught up and become overly passionate about, and to some cases I've seen it where they're combative. Like, you don't want to take this. Like, what are you talking about? Blah, blah, blah. Like, okay, right, now you're going the wrong way, right? Like you got to go back and, and be thoughtful and just calm yourself down. And But I definitely have seen it. I've actually worked with a couple leaders where they want to be involved in the close, right? They actually want to deliver the numbers. They want to be the one to say, yeah, I did that. I, I closed that person. And good recruiters are going to be like, oh yeah, I'll set it up for you and I'll make it easy, as easy as possible. And so that does happen. They feel good about it. The candidate feels good that somebody spent the time at that level to actually be involved in the close. But I have sat in rooms before and I've had to map out on a whiteboard, like, all right, now you got to say this. Now bring it over here and like, you're just full whiteboard, full of ink. And you have to give a lot of direction, like how you go into the conversation, what setup is involved, when you drop numbers, when you explain equity, when you explain long-term value of the equity, assuming that you know you have to know like total addressable market and rev and run rate and all that stuff. And that's stuff that probably comes out in those conversations for those first key hires. Right. As a founder, you're going to be seating your team with people and you just need to be able to explain and articulate these things in a way much like you've done with the board to get your funding. But you have to be able to do it with a level of compassion and empathy when you're delivering it to somebody where they might think they're not getting the best possible deal. But that said, man, the thing is like the pre-close stuff, even from the jump with the first call, it's like building that trust. So the money piece is just going to take care of itself. So there's not a ton, a lot of negotiation. They believe in the impact. They understand the mission. They want to be part of it. They like it, the dynamic team, all that stuff leads up to the close. And the close is, all right, here's the offer. Did the best we could. This is what the value looks like. All right, great. I'll take it. Yeah. Like the offer should be the easiest part. And so almost oh, like absolutely. you want to be warming them up and getting them into conviction. So by the time you extend that thing, you've made it so easy for them to say yes to it. Yeah. Do all that up front, but you got to drip it. I've seen people totally front load the cell. They got nothing to talk about all the way through. There's one person and I'm not going to mention that person's name, but they know they do it. I don't work with them anymore, um, but like front load the crap out of it and then have nothing to sell. And then overpromise a bunch of stuff and then fall out. And you talked about the cadence and like the rhythm of that, of there's something to say about the dance between assessing and selling and like knowing when to do that. Cause we've seen the reverse too, where they're assessing so hard at the front, but they haven't sold the candidate on why they should continue interviewing to begin with. And they're just getting grilled, just like full on interrogation in the first conversation. Which is crazy to me, right? Like is at that point, you've made it somewhat of a confrontational engagement where and I know I know a lot of really good engineers that are like, yeah, and I've seen it where they've just like, anything you throw at me, I'm going to be able to solve. 
And now it's just turned into a game show for them. And they don't even care about the prize at the end. Yeah, they're just contestants. On yeah, a, they're just contestants. Yeah. Like, yeah, thanks for the multiple technical challenges, but we're three weeks in and nobody's asked me like where I live or what I do in my off time. Wow. Yeah, no, that is so real. There was something in there about like the assessing, the selling and the mentality that like this person should be so lucky to work here versus the trying to find mutual fit where they feel like you know, like everyone, you wish you had this opportunity. Like there's a lot of that. It's like we're doing you a favor. Right. Because for founders, you know, this is their baby. This is their life's work. And they they see it with eyes differently. They're the hot stuff in their world. They're the next big thing. And just like being able to come back to a base level and realize that there are so many cool opportunities out there. Which is a thing that recruiters have, internal recruiters have to contest with. And even agency recruiters. Like you're not the only show. Yeah. Right. Multiple game shows, as it were. Yeah. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But, and I think that, and I'll give props, like founders, hardworking, determined. I've sat over in Sequoia in their lobby and watched founders like, People that are doing the parade, trying to get the financing, just like downtrodden, head drooping, like we've seen it in a lot of the VC lobbies. So they get their butts handed to them quite often. And so when they do end up getting that funding and they want to see the team, they want you as a candidate to be as passionate as they are. And that's not going to happen a lot of times, right? And you need to be able to recognize that. We're Facebook or we're Instacart or we're Uber. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Shout out to Brian. <laughs> but these founders, they think that they are the only game in town and it's a good thinking model to have. Um, do you feel like founders typically make their first talent hire too late? Like when is the ideal time to bring in your first talent operator? I think it's when you actually secure a good round of funding and you're going to experience some growth and you need to put a lot more rigor into the infrastructure of recruiting. You get that Series A or B, and these days they're big Series A's and B's, right? Like $30, $50 million or more. You should probably start thinking about a talent leader. And people call them heads of, or you could probably get away with a manager with a focus on technology because you're going to do the bulk of your hiring through engineering or in engineering. But I think that's probably around the the time you want to do it. The first big round, basically. The first big round, but you should probably start having conversations with leaders before you secure it. If there's a problem, the high probability you're going to get it, you're going to want to, you're probably going to start running. You're going to have to run. Like VCs are going to push you to run, right? Because you're going to have a plan. You're going to say, this is how quickly we're going to grow. This is how we see revenue increasing. And I mean, that's whole whole part of the the whole parade. And then, but yeah, you just, you, what I have seen in the past is that smaller companies use agencies or they'll use a single recruiter or they'll outsource sourcing and stuff like that. That is very difficult, in my view, to continue to scale with the outsourced sourced or RPO model. What's your thinking there when you think about the downsides or, or the difficulties of scale when you're using kind of third-party leverage? Sometimes it's hard to control quality. You don't have the ability to have one-on-ones with people oftentimes or an account manager or something like that, right? I've had to have conversations with big staffing firms like you better start treating your contractors better. Otherwise, we're not going to use you anymore because we're getting rung up because you guys are not treating well. But I think that there's an issue with the quality control. And quite frankly, I do, aside from that, there's the cost, which is big or can be big. 
And then there's sometimes a lack of communication or calibration between what the business needs or what a department needs and what the team is actually focused on. I personally like to build things internally because it creates a lot of development opportunities professionally for people. And you're always going to have healthy churn. So you want people to continue working their way up to the higher levels or going the paths that they want to go. And then having internal people allows you to build out that employment brand or the town operations and the candidate experience, right? Like you can use them for projects, which of course is part of the development opportunity for them. And you can get away with smaller teams to begin with. I think my third month at Chime, my, my team was probably like eight people. Okay, that's decent. Servicing an org of 100 or probably a little over 100 at this point. With headcount asks, it was like 70, which wasn't a huge ask. The majority of them. Is that in a year? Is that in a quarter? What is that, that was actually in a year. And we went north of that because we had limited interviewers. It was a little bit more difficult, but we solved the interview problem and we went north of that. Yeah. Eight people hiring 70 in a year. That's a, I was punching above the weight class, I think. Oh, uh, Are you typically looking for recruiters that are coming out of startups or like the management element that you were mentioning? There are different breeds as it were, you know, different flavors of recruiter, whether they're coming from an agency or a fang company or a small startup. Like, how do you think about when you're reading the resume, as it were, what do you kind of expect from those different kinds of recruiters? at the front. Oh man, this is a good one. So I think I've gotten pretty good with reading profiles. <laughs> Sometimes recruiters are in a position at a large brand company, brand name company. And that is good in some ways in that they are probably, they understand accountability, they understand goaling, they understand analytics reporting, all those things, right? But at a smaller startup, if I'm working at a small startup, I'm not looking for the Facebook, Googles, thing recruiters. I don't need that. Like maybe I do at the management level for analytics and whatnot, but like I don't, I, there's more people that I could, would go over or that I would look at that worked at an organization that did not have a brand. If you've got a brand and you're working at a company with a brand, your job's easy. Hey, it's Facebook. Come talk to us. Okay. Easy. Like I'm talking back in the day when let's call it 2007 when they were, when they were starting to cook, but give me a recruiter that sold how to really tough sell. Can you imagine being a recruiter at a recruiting tools company? <laughs> right? Yeah. Damn, that's hard. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You talk about the, the pain of having to put one foot on the floor every morning. Oh like. my God. Right? Like, <laughs> dude, oh, oh, killing me, killing me. But if you find somebody that's successful, that's sold or sold, that was able to attract talent and close candidates like engineers at a recruiting tools company, there's something there. They get the hustle. They also probably have some pattern recognition of these sorts of people are interested in doing this stuff at these, you know, these companies, whatever. But yeah, I, I think uh, that's interesting. So when you read the profiles, it's like fits with the, the architecture that I have in mind and this person doesn't. And the one thing that I will say, there's somebody on my team and I read the profile and I was looking for a recruiting coordination, just a recruiting coordinator, but I also needed a find somebody that could lead the team. And I'd made an offer to one person who I thought was great, but I was having a conversation with this other person. I was looking at the person's resume and I'm like, whoa, the director of program management at YMCA, right? I'm like, okay, well, 
you know, scheduling probably wouldn't be hard. Like this is, not, but the way that the resume was actually organized and the details and the structure that was put into it, I'm like, this is there's something here, right? Talk to the person, and I'm like, this is my this is my RC leader. This is the person I'm going to bring in to to build out the recruiting coordination team, put in the infrastructure because they're so well organized. And you're looking at a director of program management YMCA today. That person runs employment brand for China. Wow, like. Talk about a career leap, but there was stuff in that profile where you were like, mm. then you get on a call and you're like, yeah, that's huge. It's where it's like huge. people that are great at navigating different kinds of complexity. And I was thinking about this the other day of one of the main biases I look for when I'm working with a founder is like, do they screen out or do they screen in? Right, right. And this idea of like someone would have seen director of program management at YMCA and been like, not a fit immediately. Doesn't come from my world. Doesn't have titles I recognize not a fit. Yeah. YMCA, you're already biased. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so I think about that of what are the reasons why this could work? What are the skills or the the things that would translate? And then what is left to learn? And then how quickly do I think they could learn that? That's really interesting. So it sounds like you're a screen in person. Where I am a find a reason to say yes. Right. And then it's a reminder to recruiters. And I guess this would be appropriate for founders too, is like, find a reason to say yes. And if you're on the cusp, make a phone call. Yeah. Profiles don't say everything. Yeah. And you need to be conscious of your unconscious bias. You need to be aware that the way you read things is the experiences that you've had with people from those organizations or what you know about the founders or, you know, the brand or what have you. You can't let that feed into your thoughts when you're reading a profile. Yeah. It's, I mean, it's tough. My rules are like, find a reason to say yes and get something from every call. Yeah, I like that. We tell the new hires at Build, it's like learn from every call. You're not going to know everything about the space, about the company, about the technology, but just learn something from every single person you talk to. Yeah, absolutely. And it's cumulative for sure. It really is. And always stay informed. That's another thing that I talk to people about, like read everything and don't just read TechCrunch because it's super fluffy in my opinion. Read like VentureWire. Go track down Dan Premack and see what he's writing about these days. Even Afrotech has a newsletter that goes out that has really interesting things that people just don't pay attention to because they do go back to the tech crunch and think. But the thing is, if you read and, and you stay knowledgeable about the industry and where the investments are going and like what sectors are hot, which VCs are actually active, you can bring that into the conversation with candidates or with founders or and you can have very thoughtful, intelligent conversations about the industry as a whole. Because when you take a look at the industry, man, I know we're not getting away from the recruiting stuff, but like there's so much history. There's so many things that I've seen or been part of or just, you know, observed for the last, what, 24 years or something where I'm like, wow, yeah, I remember when that person was doing this. I remember when next door was something before it was next door. I mean, I've been on calls trying to, I'm talking about a candidate with a founder and Jose will be on the call and he'll be able to tell me about the specific product at that time coming out of this company and like who was leading that product line. And it's like, man, that's the kind of context that you don't get unless you just been in it. And like, if you've been in it, right. And like Jose has lots of stories. He's had lots of interactions in the agency world. He was doing deals. He was great. No nonsense. And then when he moved into a16. A16Z, yeah. Like running, running security for those folks or building out pipelines for their talent there. He was in it. Yeah. He knew everything and he knew everybody. He's a dangerous man. 
Yeah, it's incredible. Just like the reservoir yeah. of names and places and companies, like companies that even didn't make it, but had strong teams. He knows about that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And that's the thing like that is with knowledge and staying engaged as a recruiter and understanding what teams are doing what at different organizations. I have multiple conversations with people that are like, well, I don't, I've never heard of Sumo Logic back in the day, or I don't know what Bobmark is, or uh, you're just like, well, actually, Sumo Logic has one of the best engineering teams in the industry. Right. How do you think about that from a seniority thing in hiring your talent team or how founders maybe should think about the first talent leader? Because there's obviously the name brand, like, do they have the hustle? Have they worked at no, no name? Have they sold things that didn't have brand strength or... Do they have the domain expertise? But then like we're talking about, there is something to be said for how long have you been around the space? There is something to be said. Is there a certain threshold there or how should founders weigh that element against kind of the overall picture? Well, you're talking about the networking ability, right? right. Like how well are they networked or who do they know? I think that there has to be some level of tenure and knowledge and obviously networking that a recruiter has done. But that's only part of it. You also need to be able to find somebody that has the ability to just approach people completely unafraid with a, an engaging message just to continue building out their network and, and get the right people on the phone. And I think that that is something is really, really difficult to suss out in an interview when you're hiring your first recruiting leader. You know, the writing skills, the creativity, those are the things that, I mean, obviously you can say, hey, send, send me a message test them and have them send out a sourcing message. That's interesting. Yeah, man, and that's something that I still do. Like I still source. Yeah. Jose is very adamant. Uh, Brian, too, like if you're not a sourcer, you're not a full recruiter almost. You're, like You're not. Yeah. You don't. And the thing is, like, that's the other thing about recruiting leaders. If there's a problem inside your organization and you're getting feedback that you're not closing or you're not getting the right quality of candidates or you're trying to maybe go out into a different region of the United States, but you're not getting the engagements, like, all right, I'm going to dive in. I'll send my own sourcing messages. I'm going to take a look at my reply rates. Right. And then when it starts working, assuming it starts working, I'll be like, hey, listen, these are all the things that I'm doing. You guys probably need to emulate this. Mirror it. Yeah. But you're not so high in the hierarchy that you're not willing to test and dive in. And Absolutely. You got to dive in, man. But that's the other thing is like recruiting leaders. And I think just people in general and jobs never ask somebody to do the job that you wouldn't do yourself. That's it. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of people there that, that would say, no, that's why you hire people to do it. <laughs> like, sure. But I challenge you to do it. Let me see you do it. Yeah. All right. That's what I thought. Well, yeah. Yeah. Thing, you know? <laughs> well, look, you're giving us almost an hour of your time. I've been keeping you and I appreciate it. Just some closing questions. What are some things that are on the horizon for Chime that you're really excited about. You've obviously way past the 100 mark. Your talent team is much bigger than that eight at this point. What are the things that, that are on the horizon that you're feeling good about? I feel really, really good about the direction of the organization. Chime is entering a new chapter. Company just went, we had our 10-year anniversary last Friday. Wow. And what, three and a half years, we've gone from 100 to about 1,500 people. And so there's a lot of, with that growth, it's a great number, awesome. But there's a lot of cleanup and efficiencies that we need to sort through and reestablish ourselves as a, a long running business. And I love where the company is going. I think that the members are accepting 
not going to talk to revenue or anything like that, but like we're in a really good path. And I think that we brought in some seasoned leaders that are really going to make this organization a household name. And that's exciting. That's exciting. We'll see what happens in the next year or so. Yeah, it's not easy. Congrats, by the way. Oh, yeah. Thank you. It's definitely been interesting to say the least, but yeah, kind of get chime in a good spot. We'll see what the next thing is for me, but maybe I'll go back to agency. Maybe I'll be working with you, man. That'd be yeah. tight. We work with Jeff Winter in the house, Hefe. I just want Jose and Brian to do my performance reviews on the regular. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then a uh, final question. Uh, people in the, the startup world, whether it's uh, fellow talent operators or founders, people that you think super highly of that you'd like to publicly give some flowers to? Oh man, the flower thing. I've been watching the podcast. That's <laughs> I see, I see. We're all about spreading the love here. So I'm pausing as long as Birnbaum was pausing. Right? I was about to say, you're going to give it back to Matt, the other acquired test? <laughs> I'll, give it, I'll give it to Matt, but like, yeah, Matt's legit. Matt Birnbaum is awesome. He's a good dude. I can't stand the fact that he wears flip-flops in the office. So it drives me <laughs> insane, man. Like it's a... Get your feet off the desk. But outside of Matt, there's a guy who is so insanely smart and good in recruiting. He's just dangerous. A guy named John Delaney, who works for Greylock. He's a longtime friend. I knew him before I even started recruiting. But he's just a very, very dangerous and respected technology recruiter. So, yeah, I love that guy. Interesting. And what's his edge? What's his uh, superpower? So he knows tech in and out. He knows hit rates. He knows everything. And the, and, and the thing is that kid wakes up every... I say kid, he's probably like 51 now. But he wakes up every morning and he reads analyst reports. And he'll read it on the companies and spaces that he's involved in. But he'll also read on the competitors. I've invited him into Thumbtack to talk to members of my team back in the day. Because he, he lives in Utah and Thumbtack had an office out there and I'm like, give me a rundown. How would you go? How would you sell against Thumbtack? And he was just like, <laughs> <laughs> had it off the top. He was like, I don't even need no prep time. Oh man, immediately. And he full on went into category management, the pricing model. Like he knew all this stuff and things that he didn't know, he had made strong assumptions about and was pretty spot on. Yeah. Informed assumptions. Yeah. Unbelievably informed. The guy's so good. I don't know if I say it, but. There are people that want to talk to him that are technologists where he's like, eh, no, like he'll, he'll say no to people. Yeah. He already knows. He knows everything already. You know? He knows <laughs> Like, yeah, man, he's doing something for Reed Hoffman and, um, oh man, what's wrong with me? The gentleman that started Android. I forgot his name. It's, oh, we were just talking about this guy too. I want to say like Andrew or something, but. Nah, yeah. yeah. I don't know what my phone is. Anyway. Yeah. He's working directly with those guys and he's. I don't know. He just knows too much, man. Yeah. No, that, that's a, that is a dangerous man Yeah, with that much knowledge, for sure. Shout out to John Delaney. Maybe we can get him on the pod. Yeah, if you can. Yeah, maybe he'll say, maybe he'll say yes to us. Yeah, I'll do, he breaks it down. He's real. Yeah, no, that's amazing. Shout out to John. But yeah, I appreciate all the time, Jeff. I know that there's undoubtedly more treasure in there that we weren't able to dig to, but really glad we got a chance to sit down and thank you again for coming on. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, all right, cheers. All right. Later, man. The Gradients is brought to you by Build Talent. To find out more about us, head to buildtalent.io and make sure to search for The Gradients in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else podcasts are found. 
click follow so you don't miss out on any future episodes. And on behalf of everyone here at Build, thanks for listening. Thank you.